This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Over the next three episodes of the podcast, we're going to talk about the legacy of America's first black president. That's right. And to put us in the mood, I want to take you back to that bitterly cold January day in 2009. Mm -hmm. And we're going to listen to some of President Obama's inauguration speech. The time has come to reaffirm our enduring spirit, to choose our better history, to carry forward that precious gift. That noble idea passed on from generation to generation, the God-given promise that all are equal, all are free, and all deserve a chance to pursue their full measure of happiness. We were all just so young and innocent and optimistic back then. Even President Obama sounds younger. Right? Doesn't he? He sounds different. (laughs) What a difference eight years makes, right? So in this episode, we're going to real talk about the last eight years, and we're going to discuss the impact that race had on Obama's presidency, but also how Obama's presidency affected people of color in America. Mm -hmm. And the role it played in the criticism of President Obama and how that shaped how he governed. You know, before we go on, I have to say all presidents have had to deal with some measure of partisan rancor. Right, right, Gene? But the tenor and nature of the attacks against President Obama, they just felt different. Yeah. In so many of these cases, it's been hard to draw the bright line around the part that's racist, right? It's hard Mm -hmm. to say, this is the racist thing. But we have this long, ugly, and ongoing history of American racism. And so that's the backdrop to all these insults. A lot of the time, Gene, attacks from his political opponents felt straight up racist. Mm -hmm. And we'll be discussing this with our guest, Jamel Bowie. He's Slate's chief political correspondent. And the sociologist, Tressie McMillan-Cotton, who wrote this very provocative piece for The Atlantic called The Problem with Obama's Faith in White America. But first... Here's a highlight, or I guess, you know what I mean, I guess a low light reel of Mm -hmm. Obama's this is, in case you've forgotten, because eight years is a long ass time. The reforms, the reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegal. It's not true. You lie. (laughs) Shouted by South Carolina Republican Congressman Joe Wilson at President Obama as President Obama was addressing a joint session of Congress Mm. on his health care bill. And let's just say, Gene, that kind of heckling is extraordinary on the House floor toward the president of the United States. Some say that kind of heckling is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget, Congressman Wilson was pointing vigorously at the president while shouting, you lie. Yeah, Shireen, he was pointing, like, jabbing his finger, you know. His like, face it, was red. Yeah, he was he was very angry. And Shireen, remember this other incident, speaking of finger wagging, in which uh, Obama's getting off of Air Force One on the tarmac, and he's meeting up with Jan Brewer, who was then the governor of Arizona. And so there's mm-hmm. this famous picture of her wagging her finger in his face like he's a child. Yeah, Gene, that one's burned into my brain. Mm. There are also a number of incidents involving former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, Uh, He called the president the food stamp president. President Obama is the most effective food stamp president in American history. No president has put more people on food stamps than Obama. No, this is not an attack. Food stamp president. This kind of dog whistling with a bullhorn, with a (laughs) boombox. Gingrich was also quoted as saying that the way to understand President Obama is by understanding his, quote, Kenyan anti-colonial behavior. Um, He also said the president's personal appeal had to do with the fact that people like having an articulate and attractive African-American as president. Articulate and (laughs) African-American. But, I mean, 
Is he even American, Shereen? You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country. And I'll tell you what, three weeks ago, I thought he was born in this country. Right now, I have some real doubts. So that was Donald Trump in 2011. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump has been wondering about uh, President Obama's citizenship for about five years now. I think he's finally relented and said, oh, yes, President Obama was born in the United States. But let's not forget, President Obama could also be an undercover Muslim still, whose fist bumps mean more than we think they mean. A fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That is so ridiculous. That was Fox News speculating about what might have been going on. Surreptitiously, deviously, (laughs) subliminally, when Michelle Obama dapped up her husband after a campaign speech. Just, oh, what's... (laughs) Fox News needed an explanatory comma for that, obviously. <laughs> that actually sounds like the way we imagine explanatory commas sounding when they go wrong. A terrorist fist jab. A terrorist fist jab? A pound? <laughs> ah, and then there's the congressman from Colorado, Gene, who said being associated with President Obama was like, Well, let's just listen to Representative Doug Lamborn in his own words. I don't want to even have to be associated with him. It's like touching a a tar baby and you're stuck and you're part of the problem now. Tar baby. Mm. I mean, it's it's vintage, you know what I mean? It's it's Mm -hmm. taking it back. Uh, He said that, Shireen, he said later that he didn't mean anything racist by that. He wasn't even aware of its racial connotation. So, you know, always a little bit of plausible deniability. Well, what about these two California examples I have? One, a Los Alamitos mayor sent out an email with a picture of the White House and a watermelon patch in the back. The subject line, no Easter egg hunt this year. I get it. (laughs) Mm. And another California Republican Party official emailed President Obama's face photoshopped on a baby chimp in a chimp family portrait saying, quote, now you know why. No birth certificate. Uh, he said they were just joking. Shereen, get your people. What, what's up with Californians? What, get your, collect your people, please. I'm embarrassed that that happened in my home state. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just joking, Gene. They were just, just joking. Just jokes, yeah. Yes. Hilarious. Anyway, that's enough from the two of us. Let's bring in our guests, Jamel Bowie and Tressie McMillan-Cotton. Jamel, Tressie, any other disses that you remember that you want to add to our little low-light reel here? I, I can't recall any. You guys kind of got the greatest hits there. Um, yeah. What about the president's family? They weren't immune. Yeah. No, I was I was about to say, you know, everything that uh, Barack got, um, Michelle and Sasha and Malia and Michelle's mother, right, got too, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of unique. Uh, we talk about, you know, yeah, every president has faced resistance and certainly sort of the character of themselves in the media that's on, you know, media and popular culture that can be expected. But there has been sort of a long history of sort of hands off the family. And I think one of the maybe great legacies of the last eight years is going to be how that was denied to the mm-hmm. Obama family. As you assess President Obama's legacy, what do you think the effect of what we're calling these racial disses were to his presidency? I think one effect was to sort of deepen a bond between Obama and um, black voters and, hmm. and the black voting public. I think there 
Um, there was always, as, as soon as it became plausible that Barack Obama could become president in 2008, I think there was a level of defensiveness around Obama. And I think the the scale of the attacks on Obama strengthened that defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And there are ways in which this wasn't necessarily a good thing because there are legitimate criticisms to make of Barack Obama from the perspective of um, uh, of a black voter, of a black voter who's looking for maybe um, greater economic relief, greater relief on home ownership, um, uh, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, this is sort of competing with a sense of kind of solidarity with Obama as a member of the community and who is facing a level of opposition, which I think many black Americans viewed as being essentially racial. Um, and this is something I've gathered just from engaging with black voters and black observers over the past six years that I've been reporting on politics, but also, you know, in talking to family members, talking to friends. Tressie? Yeah, listen, I mean, I, I think Jamel makes an excellent point. It, it harkens back to the idea that what really makes us black as a sociopolitical identity um, is when our fates are linked. And I suspect that mm. um, Barack you know, with his um, particular sort of experience of how he was racialized um, in Hawaii as a mixed-race child has probably never been more black in his life than when he became president mm-hmm. because of how deeply the racial discourse linked him to the sociopolitical experience of being black in America. I think what a lot of black voters felt was um, kinship, right, uh, based on that. And I have wondered if maybe he it also didn't deepen his sense of kinship, right? There's nothing like sort of experiencing sort of the sustained level of racism to make you um, think about and reflect on your racial identity when you're black. And so I, I suspect that, you know, a lot of that was at play. I also suspect and think that it really circumscribed what kind of political discourse we could have. Um, it puts a lot of boundaries around what was going to be the the culture war of our moment, that all of the culture wars were going to be fought through this sort of uh, racist discourse. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So to Jamel's point, right, whether or not we ended up talking about policy in really uh, serious ways, whether we could talk about especially, I think, economic policy. Because, again, we were in this moment uh, when Barack Obama was elected where, you know, it's easy to forget now, but we were really questioning whether, like, global capitalism was going to survive for a little while there. Um, I think we could have had a much better political response if we had not been so distracted Mm. by people's racism. I mean, you know, Toni Morrison has the great quote that one of the great um, achievements of racism is to keep black folk busy. Is distraction. That's right. To keep you busy talking about everything that's racist. And so everything else gets to happen backstage. And I feel like on a sort of, you know, national level, our national psyche was having that moment. All of that sort of happened because we had to talk about Joe Wilson shouting, you lie, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the political discourse, I think, gets uh, circumscribed because of the way um, race and racism played out at the presidential level. Jamel, you've written about how these types of disses were really done to delegitimize President Obama. And listening to Tressie, it sounds like it worked. I mean, what do you think about that? Especially in the first year, what they served to do was to uh, blacken Barack Obama um, against his sort of overt uh, attempts to to walk away from that. I think at present, Barack Obama is so tied to sort of kind of collective black identity that I think we sometimes forget that, or not all of us, but some people forget that in 2008 and 2009, Obama made active attempts to distance himself from 
um, uh, the idea of him as a black president, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's not just the Jeremiah Wright speech. And there wasn't just his statements to the effect of, you know, I, I have to be a president for all America. I can't be a president for black America. Um, there's all of that. And the racialized attacks on him, um, I think, serve to directly counter that and to make him um, in the eyes of many white Americans who maybe didn't see him like that to begin with or who maintain the post-racial fantasy um, to make him a, a black president specifically. And I think kind of the moment where this all converges is the Skip Gates incident in hmm. summer 2009. Henry Louis Gates, a professor at Harvard, um, is arrested going into his home in Cambridge. And there's a big incident uh, about this Barack Obama during a press conference on education, actually. Obama, during his press conference, says, you know, I think that police officer acted stupidly. Um, that you know, obviously Henry Louis Gates, this is, he's not a, he's not an obscure man. Um, he is an older man. He's not breaking into this home. He lives there. And the officer should have exercised better judgment. And this turns into a firestorm of controversy. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that if you look at his approval ratings at this point, this is June uh, 2009. We've already we've gone past the worst of the recession um, to an extent. Kind of recession related hits true of approval ratings have already been baked in, mm-hmm. and his approval rating among white Americans drops considerably. Huh. Um, uh, I, I think around ne- and never rebounds. <laughs> but Jamal, right. he didn't just say that, didn't he? Say like there's a long history. Right, of right. African Americans and Latinos being stopped by the police, and that is a fact. I mean, I I think he was that very pointed. Right. Thank you, Shereen. Mm-hmm. That was his real. Listen, I I maintain to this day about the Skip Gates incident and um, Barack's response. That was what really, uh, in the minds of many white voters, blackened him. And I think even among white voters that had supported him, which you know. Whether or not we'll ever get any honest assessment of um, white racial attitudes among um, those who supported Barack Obama or not, and I suspect we never will, Mm -hmm. um, I think that it was his appeal to history. What Barack Obama had done to become Barack Obama, right, to become possible, was to distance himself not just from black people and from blackness, but uh, more so than that, he wanted to distance himself from the history of blackness in this country. Right. Because what we know from surveys of white racial attitudes is that there is an extreme amount of resentment among white people across the political spectrum, right, about appeals to historical grievance. We know not only that, you know, in this incident, right, that something uh, uh, had gone wrong, but that historically these are the interactions between the police and African-Americans and Hispanics that was perhaps the real offense to a lot of white voters. And I suspect why he was never able to really rebound, because then everything becomes, you know, uh, confirmation bias after that, right? Looking for more evidence that he sees himself in this sort of historical mm-hmm. lineage of black grievance, right? To Tressie's point, it is worth saying that in 2008, especially, Obama was often contrasted with, you know, more traditional black political leaders right, or yeah. th- those in a more traditional mode like Jesse Jackson, Jackson mm-hmm. or Al Sharpton. Mm-hmm. And the, the it wasn't just a rhetorical uh, comparison, mm-hmm. oh, he sounds differently or he comes from a different place. It was very much the fact that Jackson and Sharpton root their politics mm-hmm. in this past grievance, in this history, yeah. and Obama did not. Um, mm-hmm. And Obama, in fact, offered a kind not even not even a racial reconciliation, but kind mm-hmm. of a if you support me, I will wipe away your racial sins. Yes, it will be as if they yes. never happened. Oh yes, that sort of dovetails with 
um, the, the thesis of Tressy's essay, right? The problem with Obama's faith in white America, which is a very pointed title. Um, but this idea that Obama underestimated or um, misread white America because of his biography for a bunch of reasons. He extended a lot more credulousness to white people's ability to countenance a lot of things. Um, and so you said he didn't know his whites. Uh, mm-hmm. So can you talk about that a little bit, about that idea that he didn't know his whites? <laughs> yeah, so this is a saying, and I've got to credit a, um, an old friend of mine for it, else I think he might kill me. Um, <laughs> this is a, you know, a, definitely a Southernism, right? I know my white folk. You better know your white folks, right? And it comes from this idea that the racial hierarchy in the United States varies from place to place, right? They're all an iteration of the same, of course, racial system. But how it works in the North is going to be different from how it works in the South, different from how it is in Chicago, different from how it is in California, right? Different from how it is in Hawaii. Oh, very exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it is still the case that if you were talking about sort of linking, again, linked fates with African-Americans in this country, you are dealing with a particular Southern iteration of race. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't matter where you're from. You've got to you got to come to South Carolina and you got to talk the talk. Right. That's what he had to learn when he was um, running in 08 even. And to do that, you're engaging with a very particular history about how we talk about race in the South. Right. That is so vastly different from anything he'd probably ever experienced in Hawaii. And I suspect and even Chicago. Chicago is different. I've lived in Chicago. Chicago is different um, from North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi. Right. You don't just drop yourself into South Carolina and not very quickly learn how race and racism works in the South. <laughs> yes. I was just in Charleston and I was. That's exactly. Yeah. You just don't walk yourself up in through Charleston. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and it comes from older black people who had this idea that wasn't just about your quality of life, but that truly, literally your life depended on it. Mm-hmm. Right. When the history of white violence in the South was such that you did not have the expectation of safety um, as an African-American, knowing your whites was truly, seriously, all humor aside, was about staying alive. Right. It was about survival. Mm. And so that's where the, you know, the phrase comes from. But I was reflecting on Antonahisi Coates' piece on Barack Obama, you know, how much credit he gives his faith in the potential of white people to move past their racism Mm -hmm. and that it was so rooted in his biography of being not just mixed race, but being so, you know, deeply loved by his mother and his grandparents as if, you know, being loved by your parents and grandparents is weird. But that it has somehow (laughs) so shaped his faith in white people more broadly that he was a unique and new type of black politician and black person. Right. I mean, Obama tells a story in Ta-Nehisi's essay in which he says, I go into white folks' Mm -hmm. homes. Um, mm-hmm. And I see the same tchotchkes in their homes that I see, right. see in my grandmother and my grandfather's mm-hmm. homes. Um, and he's like, you know, it's just like, oh, this is the house I grew up in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he doesn't see himself as, as separate and apart, right, from right. white people. That's part of his story, too. Yes. And, you know, it's fine to be aware of that. But I also thought it was strange that somehow there was this idea that of all people, black people in the South— with a history of intimacy with white Americans somehow didn't have a legitimate claim to knowing white people that well, too. As if his knowledge of white people was somehow more legitimate than ours, Hmm. right? And I think that what he faced and what he dealt with was that our awareness and our intimate knowledge of whiteness was actually also quite valuable. And in fact, had he perhaps honored that, um, learned from it, he maybe would not have spent the first three years of his presidency waiting for uh, those across the aisle. Again, some of this is absolutely just about partisanship. Sure. But the partisanship became more accurate because of race, 
right? And that maybe he wouldn't have held out so much hope for the Republicans being rational, for example, had he understood how salient the idea of racism still was as a political tool in the U.S. We always knew that in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, because we still know our whites. <laughs> it's still important for us to know. Uh, and so, yeah, my, my larger point is I think that instead of wholesale giving him credit for being so hopeful about that, that why was his faith and his intimate knowledge of white folks somehow considered superior to ours? When honestly, if we are now you know, looking back over his presidency, what we knew of white people may have been more beneficial to his politics than what he knew of them. Coming up, long before there was a president, Barack Obama, Tupac Shakur said, although it seems heaven sent, we ain't ready to see a black president. Tressie says the heavens must have had something to do with it. This was like, you know, 50 moons aligning on like one of those, you know, hippie holidays, you know, the equinox or something. Like so much had to come together. (laughs) It had to be Hawaii. It had to be that mother and those grandparents. It had to be Harvard during that year. Yes, the stars aligned. But were we ready? And more importantly, was he You're listening to Code Switch, part one of our series of conversations on President Obama's racial legacy. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Ben & Jerry's, a B Corp committed to using the power of business to advance progressive social change. Since the company's earliest days, Ben & Jerry's has been about a lot more than just euphoric ice cream. Today, they believe that dialogue can bridge differences, promoting a more just and equitable future for all. Join Ben and Jerry's on a journey to better understand issues of race in America and get involved at BenJerry.com slash racial justice. Thanks for listening to Code Switch. 1A is NPR's new daily show inspired by the First Amendment. 1A is the news with those who make the news. Great guests and topical debate, all framed in ways to make you think and engage. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR on the NPR One app or visit npr.org slash podcast. What would have been the best case scenario for, you know, our first black president under the the political context in which he has to operate? Jamal, you've written about this before, but... uh, to the point that, that Tracy was making before, you know, Obama sort of distanced themselves from this, like, black political tradition that people associate with Sharpton and Jackson. But those black politicians who come out of that tradition tend to have very low ceilings for their careers, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what, in a world in which a black president could have been more pointed mm-hmm. in the way he discussed race in public, um, mm-hmm. what would that have looked like and what might the blowback have been? It's a hypothetical that I have, have a hard time dealing with because I'm not actually sure that you could have that combination of, of factors, mm-hmm. right? That I'm not sure that you could have, say, a, a Jackson-style politician become president in 2008 mm-hmm. um, to begin with. I, I can't, the, the path to that point is really hard mm-hmm. to imagine. Um, like I think- This is why so many of the ideas of what a black president might look like before were like jokes, right? I mean, it was always right. Richard Pryor, right? It was always Dave right. Chappelle. Like it was, that, that was the idea that, if there were a black politician who were to become president, he would look like Jesse Jackson, and that would be mm-hmm. something that America was— That would be ludicrous. Would be ludicrous, yeah. right? No, yeah. for all of my, I hope, fair critiques of um, this complicated legacy of, uh, I, you know, our first black president, I want to be clear. I, I, I agree with Jamel. I don't think there is a hypothetical 
I think the reality is, and that doesn't say as much, I think, about Barack Obama as it says about this country. He's right. literally the best that could have happened. Hmm. Yeah. This was this, this was the best case. This was like, you know, 50 moons aligning <laughs> on like the one of those, you know, hippie holidays, you know, the equinox or something like this. Was, so <laughs> much had to come together. It had to be Hawaii. Like it had to be that mother and those grandparents. It had to be Harvard during that year. It had to be right. And even then, <laughs> he still right. had to have a senatorial uh, opponent who dropped out of yes. the race behind the sex scandal. Right. And then you <laughs> had to have sort of the massive racialized political resistance. Right. Like, I actually think this is the best possible Cause you, outcome. Because I'm trying to think of other hypothetical <laughs> black presidents. And I, I think you're looking you're looking at Republican politicians. And even then. Can you say more about that, what you mean? But yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to do it by contrast. So. Mm-hmm. Part of the limits of Barack Obama is that I wouldn't say he had to, but all the incentives pointed towards him leaning towards the center of the Democratic consensus, wherever it was. Um, it made his path easier. In the same way, I think a hypothetical Republican, black Republican president was probably going to be right of center, like considerably right of center, because it makes it easier. Sort of it, it makes him it makes him less ideologically suspect to. Um, folks who might be resistant. I think Tim Scott in South Carolina is a very good example of this, a very right-wing politician. Um, yeah, he's interesting. I think, I think to, yeah, as a parenthetical, I think Tim Scott is a very interesting politician. Uh, but I think in the same way, in terms of Barack Obama being the best case scenario, your other scenarios here for first black president, I think do involve like right-wing Republicans. Um and best case scenario, if you're if you're left of center here, if you're if you're lefty listening to this, and likely your best case scenario for first black president, what's Barack Obama followed by a right wing Republican of some way, shape, or form? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's 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 where you are. But the question is, I mean, did he have to give speeches about respectability politics? Did he have to? I mean, mm-hmm. so yes, he's the best case scenario. But um, when in office, did he? Mm-hmm. Go a little bit. Yeah, did he I mean, take I, it a little bit too far? To your question, I don't think he had to give those speeches. I yeah. and I think to to Tressy's essay that had Obama known his whites in the southern sense, that he would have recognized that giving those speeches was not going to help him. We should say that um, when, when the speeches that Shireen is talking about are speeches he gave like at Morehouse, right, where in which he mm-hmm, gives right. the graduating class the sort of mm-hmm. uh, lecture about them being responsible and, you know, mm-hmm. um, as, as if a bunch of kids at Morehouse necessarily to hear that, right? Or, you right. know, or the Pookie speeches he gave. You know, tell Pookie to get off the couch. Oh, and, no, you know. I hate the Pookie speeches. Gosh. As if the voting rate of African Americans didn't exceed white Americans in 2012. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the 2008, you know, term Barack Obama, I can imagine him feeling like he needed to make that speech. Right. Like many black Americans um, um, by his second term thought he no longer had to make those those speeches and he seemed to make them even more in the second term. And that felt like a rejection. Right. So, I mean, one of the things I was kind of dealing with the piece and I think I will be dealing with for quite some time are my complicated feelings of affinity for um, Barack and especially for um, the first family um, and absolutely all evidence pointing, you know, I'm still a rational person and I have to accept where the evidence leads me and all evidence suggesting um, that he in no way felt the same affinity to us. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the most critical pieces of that kind of evidence is that. Right. 
maybe in 08, we gave so much room for understanding the sort of um, high wire dance he had to do, um, we black voters, right, um, in 08 to maintain and to keep the job. Mm -hmm. By the second term, I, I felt like, you know, that that wasn't necessary. And the only thing I could attribute it to was trying to, you know, proactively again manage his presidential legacy. Um, and I didn't think I thought we deserved more than that. We deserved better than that. I think we deserved uh, more and better, um, certainly from the performance of, yeah, you know, f- wagging the finger at black Americans in the second term um, when we were the reason why he kept getting why he got reelected. Um, I, I also I'll add to that that I think. Obama's rhetoric, um, his responsibility rhetoric, I call it, with with quotes, with with quotes in an eye roll. Um, <laughs> uh, Obama's responsibility rhetoric also had, beyond being kind of just insulting, um, mm-hmm. helped create a, a counterproductive atmosphere that we're going to be dealing with for a while. Um, constantly, constantly, you know, speaking about you know playing for pants and voting and everything gives license to the idea. That yes, that the individual behavior of Black Americans is mm-hmm. responsible in some way, shape, or form for the economic uh, situation of African Americans. Can Can I just ask you before we get out of here, um, as we as we wrap this up, um, how the two of you metabolized the criticism of Obama? Like personally, like what did you make mm-hmm. of as you watched the stuff unfold? Mm. I will be honest, for the first few years of Obama's presidency, I really actually tried to give the benefit of the doubt about the criticism of Obama. Uh, I grew up in a very conservative place around lots of conservatives. Um, and I sort of – I get the opposition to the Affordable Care Act. I get all of this. And so for – I mean for the first few years, I kind of absorbed the criticism of Obama as being basically intense partisanship um, and not and not necessarily – uh, tied to race, um, as and and this is probably also a function of you know when Obama entered office, I was twenty two years old, uh, and you're a big you know but yeah yeah. I was about to say, what are you doing? Allowed to do things? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think for me, the reaction to its Trayvon Martin remarks for me it was a okay definitive. This is not about. Partisanship, or not primarily or only about partisanship, that the extent to which um, the resentment of Obama uh, and, and also going to you know Tea Party events and, and, and reporting, basically reporting, talking to these voters, um, talking to the working class whites that I'm told that I do not understand mm-hmm. is what has brought me to a place where I, I refuse to disentangle race resentment from partisanship. Um, that the two are part of each other, that they're moving together, um, that they influence very deeply the reaction to Barack Obama, and that I firmly believe that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, assuming that there are still historians chronicling the United Mm. States and American politics, that they will look back and laugh with incredulity at the idea that anyone ever thought that racism wasn't primarily a driver here. Mm -hmm. Interesting. For me, it was never ridiculous that everything about uh, the last eight years had to be filtered through our understanding of race and racism, and not just in this moment, but our historical understanding of it. Um, And that anybody who was trying to do it any other way uh, 
was accepting all of the flaws of, the, of their analysis, right? I, I could see the flaws in the analysis from a mile away because I thought, well, yeah, all of that would be perfectly rational and make lots of sense if this were not the United States of America, right? Um, and that to me just seemed to be the assumption that we all needed to operate from. Any, but, what about, but what about for you personally, Tressie? Are you yeah. saying, you know, I have this history, I know this mm-hmm. stuff, so I wasn't shocked by it? Or did it... Mm-hmm personally affect you in any way seeing the first black president be attacked the way he was were you ever angry watching it oh yeah yeah but i mean you know as is bruce banner says the tr- the trick is i'm always angry <laughs> right like so yeah it's not anger, absolutely i will say i think that watching joe wilson say you lie because i i did have still just a little bit of innocence left about the extent to which deference for the office of president could protect uh, Barack Obama, right? I did. I thought, I mean, you know, the grandeur of uh, the office is amazing. Um, I had the opportunity, you know, to go to the White House for one of these meetings uh, for the first time a year or so ago. And listen, it's hard to be cynical walking into the freaking White House. Mm-hmm. The the pageantry and the ritual and the history of that place and of that office, I thought, oh, I kind of get it now, right? Like what people have always said, you know, especially conservatives, you know, you respect the office, even if you don't like the person, right? I kind of got it, right? Um, but to think that in the face of all of that pageantry, you could still scream, you lie and wag your finger at the president of the United States. That was, for me, probably the, the end of any shred of innocence I had about how this was going to work. Then I thought, oh, this is going to work just like everything else works in this country. And from that point on, I, I mean, I hate being that person. But, yeah, I was kind of just like, this is going to happen the way uh, race and racism always work. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think I get like angry very often. It's just not like an emotional register I have. Um, but I do feel despair very intently, <laughs> intensely. And the thing that got, that has gotten me, um, and this is putting Obama's politics aside is that, you know, he really is, uh, kind of a, I really get educated constitutional lawyer um, who is seems to be a moral and upright example, American example in, in every way you can imagine. And if Barack Obama is not good enough for some of these people, then none of us are. Jamel Bowie is the senior political correspondent at Slate, and Tressie McMillan Cotton is a sociologist at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her essay is called The Problem with Obama's Faith in White America. Thank you both for rocking with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. All right, y'all. That's our show. We want to hear from you. As always, you can email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Follow us on Twitter at NPR Codeswitch. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to our podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Because next week is part two of three Mm -hmm. on President Obama's legacy. Yes, President Obama has enjoyed huge support from communities of color. We know this. But in some ways, he's left folks wanting. Remember that nickname, Deporter-in-Chief, Gene? Yep, he got the nickname with good reason. And we're going to get into that next week. But until then, Walter Ray Watson and Rund Abdel Fattah produced this episode. Our editorial assistant is Leah Danella. Original music by Ramteen Arab Louie. A big shout to the rest of the Code Switch team, Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, and Kat Chow. Our editors are Kitty Isley and Keith Woods. We're back next week. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji. Be easy. Peace. <laughs>